Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. I want to direct your attention to the first nine verses of this chapter as we pick up again in our series through this epistle to the churches of Galatia. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which are of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. I don't want to rush through <clears throat> these verses here tonight. I want to be able to just think our way through this and take some time with it. And I'll try not to be long tonight. I don't think we will, but I just want us to make sure that we're, we're uh, thinking clearly and, and rightly as we walk through this passage of Scripture because sometimes throughout Galatians, especially in chapter 3 and chapter 4, uh, Paul is laying out uh, a defense of the gospel that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by the works of the law. And he lays out a defense for justification by faith, and some of it could, could be hard to understand if we're not thinking clearly through this. So I just want us to, to take our time as we walk through this, and point out uh, some principles tonight as we consider the folly of the Galatians. That's the title of the message, the folly of the Galatians. And you notice how Paul says in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? And we need to go back and understand again what Paul is talking about here. And throughout most of chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul has been stoutly defending the divine origin of his apostleship and the gospel message that he preached. And what I mean by that is he was preaching salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In chapter 2 and verse 16, Paul says, "...knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ." that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, why is that an important thing? Because the message that Paul preached, justification by faith, and the authority to preach it came from God and was independent of men. That's what he has been stoutly defending. In chapter 1, in verse 11, he says, "...but I certify you, brethren..." 
that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of men, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the message he preached, which was justification by faith, the authority to preach it wasn't of men, it was from God. It was independent of men. The reason he had to defend his apostleship and defend the message he preached was because of the influence of of some who were called Judaizers. The Judaizers were Jews, and they would often follow Paul to places that he went, and as Paul would preach the gospel, they would come in behind him and try to subvert the gospel, and, and they were the ones who mixed faith and works together. They said you had to believe on Jesus Christ, but in order to really be a Christian, you also needed to obey the law and and be circumcised. And Paul, in giving a defense of the gospel and the message, says that these who have influenced you are perverters of the gospel. Chapter 1, in verse 6, he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And so these said that in order to be saved, you not only had to believe in Jesus, but you also had to be circumcised and keep the law. And they ended up drawing away the Galatian believers away from the truth. And Paul is expressing his shock here. His disbelief that they could so quickly and easily be swayed from what they already knew to be true. Because Paul makes no mistake here in assuming or believing that these Galatians are actually believers in Christ. And so Paul expresses his shock in verse 6, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto Another gospel, which is not another, meaning it's not another one of the same kind. It's not equally powerful. It's not a gospel at all. And so then we come to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, Paul again comes back to the Galatians and their unfaithfulness to the gospel and listening to these false teachers. And the Galatians turning away from the gospel back to a system of works was not only a kind of spiritual treason, if you will, but it was also an act of folly. It was foolishness. And Paul says that in verse 1, O foolish Galatians. He says in verse 3, Are ye so foolish? And so he lays it out for them that this is such an act of folly, you turning away from the gospel of grace. And it was, I'll use the word stupid. It was so stupid in the mind of Paul, that Paul wondered if some sorcerer had bewitched them or cast some spell over them or somebody charmed them or captivated them. That's why he says, Who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? It was that dumb. It was that stupid. Like some spell is cast over you. His question is mostly rhetorical, though. In who hath bewitched you? For he knew good and well the activities of these false teachers. He also knew ultimately who was behind them, the devil himself. And the essence of Paul's complaint and his argument to the Galatians is that their new position that they were embracing was actually contrary 
to the gospel itself. And if the Galatians had grasped the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, what that means is that on the cross, Christ did everything necessary for our salvation, meaning that there's nothing we have to do. If they truly embraced that, they would have realized that the only thing required of them was to receive this gift, to receive that good news by faith. And so Paul points out the folly of the Galatians, and to add good works to the work of Christ was an offense to the finished work of God on our behalf. That's why Paul said in chapter 2, verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So in chapter 3, Paul exposes the senselessness of the Galatians. They should have known better. They should have resisted the false teaching of these who would pervert the gospel. And they knew perfectly well that the gospel that they had received was by faith alone, since their own experience and the plain teaching of the Scriptures told them so. They already knew this. And I want to point that out to you in these verses. Paul makes two arguments here. And we're going to look at these arguments from two perspectives tonight. First of all, Paul's argument from their own salvation experience. And then secondly, Paul's argument from the Old Testament Scriptures. And these are the two thoughts that we'll consider here tonight and make some applications as well for us along the way. So I want you to think with me as we walk through these tonight, okay? Let's pray and then we'll begin. Lord, I pray that you would give us grace tonight and understanding from your Spirit of the Word of God. And may these truths sink in. And Lord, I pray that we would be solidified even further in our faith. And Father, be able to not only give the good news of the gospel, but defend it uh, as well, uh, those who would attack it. And as Jude encouraged and, and gave a report that he wanted to write a letter of regarding the common salvation and the good news of the gospel, but he had to write instead to warn, to earnestly contend for the faith. And Father, I pray that we would be those who would stand firm in the faith, Lord, that we would be solidified in truth. And Father, that we would be able to clearly present the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that is lost. And pray that you'd help us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, consider in verses 2 through 5, Paul's argument from their own salvation experience. Paul says in verse 2, This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? In these verses here, Paul asks a series of questions to these Galatian believers. And the questions were designed to get them to think logically and to get them to, to get back to the basics of things. The first question that Paul asks here is in verse 2. And the question is, how did you receive the Spirit? He says, 
the, this only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? In other words, he says, let me ask you a question. And so as he's, and this dialogue is going on and he's writing to the churches in Galatia about this issue, he says, let me ask you a question. And I want you to think about your own experience. How was it that you received the Spirit of God? And notice that Paul didn't ask if they had the Spirit, but how did you get it? That was the question he asked. Paul assumes that they have all received the Spirit of God, which one does at the moment that they're saved. And so the question was, did you get the Holy Spirit by the works of the law, or did you get Him by faith? It really was a rhetorical question, because they already knew the answer. And in other words, he's saying, what part did you play? What part did you have, you of Galatia, who are saved? What part did you play in receiving this Holy Spirit of God? He says, you didn't do anything. You didn't do anything except believe in God's provision. If you look at verse 14 of chapter 3, Paul says that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He says that the, even the Gentiles, that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Receiving the Spirit of God is a mark or the beginning of the Christian life. The moment a person is saved is the moment that they receive the Holy Spirit of God. And so Paul says, how did you get the Spirit of God? Was it through doing works? Did you do some good works? Or was it through faith? And then he asks another question in verse 3. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? So he says, was the work begun by the Spirit of God in you? You began in the Spirit. There's the answer. You began in the Spirit. Was that not sufficient? Does God need your works to complete His work? Does He need your help? Is salvation a 50-50 deal where you do your part and God will do His part? Is that how it works? Did you have to work for your salvation? If you began in the Spirit, isn't it, is it, are you so foolish to think that now God needs your help to complete it in the flesh? Well, Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. I don't see any part of that where that includes us helping God. And so Paul says, if you began in the Spirit, are, are you so foolish to think that now God needs your help to be made perfect or complete by the flesh? And then you look at verse 4. He says, Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? They had paid a price. When Paul first visited the churches or the areas of Galatia and preached the gospel and established these churches, they paid a price in persecution. They believed Paul's preaching in spite of public opinion and pressure to the contrary. And they believed the gospel. They were saved. But now they're being persuaded to the contrary. And Paul says, is all of that in vain? Now look at verse 5. Because in verse 5, Paul uses the same arguments here, but only in a different way. 
This time it's not from the point of view of those people receiving the Holy Spirit of God, but it's from the viewpoint of God giving the Spirit. He says, He, that's God, therefore, that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he hit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? In other words, does God, who supplies the Spirit, and worked miracles among you, did He do that for you? Did He give you that because you obeyed the works of the law? Or was it because you heard and you believed? The question is the same, and the answer is the same. That God gave them the Spirit, and they received the Spirit, not because they obeyed some Old Testament or Jewish law, but because they believed the Gospel. And Paul's reminding them of their own experience. These were the facts of their own salvation experience. And Paul had come to Galatia and he had preached to them the gospel. He had publicly portrayed Jesus Christ before their eyes. Jesus Christ crucified. They heard the gospel message. And with the eye of faith, they had seen Christ displayed on a cross and their own need of salvation. They believed that gospel message. They had trusted in Christ who is exhibited in the gospel. And because of that, they received the Spirit of God. And here's the point of it all. Paul is saying to them, look, you didn't submit to circumcision. You didn't obey some Old Testament law. You didn't even try to. You believed the gospel message. So why in the world then would you turn from that not only for yourself, but for all others, and, and try to add works to, to, to something that you didn't even have to do yourself. All they had done was hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and how He had died for their sin. They believed that gospel, and the Spirit of God was given to them. Those were the facts of their own salvation experience. And Paul argues this. He says, it's ludicrous then that having begun in the Spirit, that you should now expect to be complete with the flesh. And let me make this application here. The message is still the same today. Doing good works will never merit favor with God. Salvation has always been and will always be by God's grace alone through faith in Christ's finished work on the cross, alone. Some people have professions of faith. They say, oh, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. They say, well, how did you get saved? They're like, well, sometime back when I was this age or in this part of my life, and I was baptized and I went to church, and you know, I was part of a Christian home. I just believed in God. And they've got all of these things that they say regarding their salvation. But all of those things are works-based. All of those things are things they did. And now they say, I am saved because I did these things, when none of those things will ever save a person. It's by faith in Christ alone, in His finished work alone. The message is still the same. That's the primary application, but here's the secondary application, and this is really what I want to 
nail down here just for a minute. And it's a secondary application, but it's very relevant. And what we're talking about here is these Galatian believers who heard the gospel, who had believed the gospel, who were saved, and now they've been influenced and they're turning away from a position that they held to something different. You following that? Everybody got that? Here's the application. This is all too common in our world today with second, third, and fourth generation Christians. And we might call it second, third, or fourth generation syndrome. And what I mean by that is that so easily people depart from what even first or second generation Christians stood for and believed with all of their heart. And somehow it's not translated down to the next generation. We live in a day now where everything, more than ever, is questioned. The things of God are questioned to the core. Things, simple truth even, that should be something in concrete, is questioned and even departed from and not believed anymore. I'll just give you a simple example. It ought to be for us at least, that we hold to the King James Version of the Bible as the inspired Word of God in the English language. That ought not to be something that is questioned. It ought not to be something that is, that is uh, you know, that, 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 that people, at least, at, least, at least God's people in, in, in fundamental New Testament Baptist churches. It ought not to be something that is questioned or, 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 or left or disregarded. It ought to be something so simple, but the things of God are questioned uh, and, and, and truths that have long been believed are being departed from. Let me just give you a simple illustration of this. I admit that I was probably somewhat naive at some point in my Christian life and thinking that, you know what, if, if, if somebody uh, you know, like Jordan or somebody like like Laura or somebody like, uh, you know, anybody who's grown up in a, in a good church. Not that these two are going to, I'm not picking on you two. It's just an example. Anybody who's grown up in a good New Testament church where the truth is preached and, and there's standards and there's, there's truth from God's word. And, and, and anybody who's just grown up in, in that kind of an environment, listen, where, where there are landmarks that we don't move from, I was probably a bit naive to think that those kinds of things would never, ever be challenged or questioned. And there was a point in time, it was right before I moved up to Alaska several years ago, there was a friend of mine, close friend, who fit the description I just gave you. From the time he was this big, grew up in a Christian home, in a good New Testament Baptist church, doctrine straight, uh, you know, local church, the, the whole nine yards. You talk about it, it's the whole nine yards. That's how he grew up, trained into him. And he was a friend. I never knew this about my friend. But there was at one point, we started having a conversation and the conversation turned to the Word of God. And out of the blue, I was just like smacked over the side of the head, if you want to, like, you know, not physically, but emotionally or with this revelation. 
that this man standing before me didn't really believe that the King James was the inspired Word of God in the English language. I was like, what? And that started this whole conversation back and forth. And I challenged him at one point in that conversation. I said, okay. I said, all right. If you believe that any other version in English is, is equally powerful, is equally inspired, is equally the Word of God, uh, then, then I'm going to challenge you with something. What I want you to do is I want you to set your King James Bible aside, because he still read out of it, although he didn't believe that that was the Word of God in the English language. I said, you set it aside, and you pick any other version that you want, and for the next week, because you do daily devotions, you say, I want you to read out of any one of those, and I just want you to come back and tell me if the Spirit of God is speaking to you out of, that, out of those Bibles like He does to you out of the King James Bible. I just want to know. And I wasn't telling him that because I thought I was so right. I wanted to know what he actually came up with. You set your King James Bible aside, you go and read out of any one of them, and you come back to me in a week, and you tell me if the Spirit of God speaks to you through it. He said, well, I don't, want, I don't need to do that. I said, well, why not? He said, I don't need to do that to know. I said, well, you could do it for me. I'd like to know. He wouldn't do it. I said, why don't you test it? Why don't you test the theory? Why don't you test the thought? By doing that, he wouldn't do it. And there were other things that were said in this conversation, but the thing that I took away from that, after I thought about that for a while, the thing I took away from it, I, it was this, was, was the arrogance and the gall of, of those of my generation to think that somehow we have a better handle on truth. We have a better understanding of God and His truths, even more than the generation before us, or the generation before them, and so on. And these, were, these are principles and truths that, that, we, that, that, that are foundational to our life. The arrogance to think that somehow we know more we have a better handle on truth than generations before us. And to just so easily walk away from things that ought to be foundational in our life is something that is very, very common. Second, third, fourth generation Christians. Like truth is, is not precious. Truth is not, not valuable. And you could talk about any other thing. Like, is, is separation from the world, is that something that's really important? You know, because God doesn't really care about what is on the outside. He only cares about what's on the inside. Have you ever heard that? Well, it's true that God does care about what's on the inside. But here's the truth. A little nugget for you. What we are on the outside is often because that's actually what we are on the inside. because of what our heart is. And the point I'm making here is that Paul marveled that they were so quickly and easily removed from the gospel, and it caused them to be fools. Are ye so foolish? And the thought is, and the prayer is, may the Lord help us 
to have real convictions about what is true and to stand on them and to not waver from them. Amen? Paul makes an argument from their own salvation experience. You didn't submit to circumcision. You didn't obey the law. You believed by faith. And then the second argument that Paul makes is the argument from the Old Testament Scriptures. Look in verse 6. Paul says this, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith the same are the children of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Now, in verse 6, Paul alludes to Abraham. And Paul's allusion to Abraham is, is, is masterful when you think about what's going on here. Because the Judaizers, his opponents... They were the ones who looked at Moses as their teacher. And so Paul went centuries before Moses, centuries further back to Abraham himself, and he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Genesis 15 and verse 6. In fact, you could just turn over there. In Genesis chapter 15, we'll just go back to verse 5. Genesis 15 and verse 5. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. So you go back to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6, where the Bible says, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And I just remind you of what the circumstance was here. Abraham was an old man. Abraham was childless. But God promised him a son and indeed a seed or a posterity that would go on and on. And one day God took Abraham out of his tent and God told Abraham to look up in the sky and count the stars if you can. And just take a look at that and you'll never be able to stop counting. And he said to him, so shall thy seed be. Abraham, who was childless, who was old, Abraham believed the promise that God made to him, and his believing God was counted to him for righteousness. Now consider carefully what happened here. First of all, God was the one who made Abraham the promise. The promise of descendants was plainly known before Abraham's eyes. God said, look at the stars, see if you can count them. This is how your seed is going to be. That means generations and generations and generations are going to come from you, even though you don't have a son. God made it plainly known before Abraham's eyes. Much like the promise of forgiveness through Christ crucified had been plainly made known before the eyes of the Galatians. Secondly, Abraham believed God. 
Despite the inherent improbability of that promise from the human point of view, Abraham cast himself on the faithfulness of God. God was the one who made the promise. I believe God. The third thing is that Abraham's faith in God was counted as righteousness. That means that he himself was accepted as righteous by faith. He wasn't justified because he had done anything to deserve it, or because he had been circumcised, or because he had kept the law. Neither circumcision nor the law had been given at that point in time. He was justified by simply believing God and his word. Without that, or with that promise of God to Abraham, Paul makes a connection here. And I want you to look at the next verses. Look at verses 7 through 9. So he says, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Now here Paul is quoting from Genesis 12, 3, where the Bible says, And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Again, in Genesis twenty-two seventeen, that in blessing I will bless thee, in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now we need to examine what this blessing is. In thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed. What is this blessing and how are all nations going to inherit it? Well, I want you to look at verse 8 of our text. Verse 8 says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. According to verse 8 here, the blessing is justification. Justification is declaring righteous before or in the sight of God. That's the greatest blessing of all, that we could be right with God. There's two verbs here, and it's justify and to bless. Those are the two verbs. The two verbs to justify and to bless are used as equivalents in this verse. And what that means is that the blessing to all nations would be inherited by faith. And so in thee shall all nations be blessed. What is the blessing? That we can have a right standing before God. How do you get that blessing? Through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, God would justify the Gentiles, but it would be by faith. That would be the only way that Gentiles could inherit Abraham's blessing. Abraham was the father of the Jews. And both verse 7 and both verse 9 affirm that the true children of Abraham who inherit the blessing uh, or promised to, to Abraham's seed wouldn't be those of his physical posterity, 
the Jews, but those who were spiritual, men and women who would receive Jesus Christ by faith. No, this is what he says. Look at verse 7. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. He's not talking about Jews. He's talking about Gentiles. Those who are of faith are the children of Abraham. Verse 9. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. All of this... Paul is trying to point out and says that the Galatians should have known. They should never have been so foolish. They should never have fallen under the spell of these false teachers. And they wouldn't have done so if they kept Jesus Christ and Him crucified before their eyes. They would have immediately realized that these Judaizers, they're they're contradicting the gospel of justification by faith alone. They should have known from their own experience. They also should have known from the Old Testament Scriptures. And the application is simply this. We too should test every theory or every teaching of men by the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially since we have the completed Word of God right in our very hands. We've been given all the truth that we need that pertains to life and godliness. And everything should be tested against the Word of God. Is it true? So let me just close with a couple of things. First of all, what is the gospel? Let me tell you what the gospel is. The gospel of Christ is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's the finished work of Christ on the cross. To preach the gospel is to publicly portray Christ as crucified, as buried, as risen again to life. And we ought to do that. Amen? We ought to publicly, boldly, vividly preach the gospel of Christ so that that people could see it with their own eyes, if you will, so they're confronted with their own sin problem, and so they can turn in faith to receive the salvation that God has provided them. We're called upon to preach the gospel. But what does the gospel offer? On the grounds of Christ crucified, the the gospel offers some great blessings. We saw it in verse 8. The Bible says that the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. The gospel offers some great blessings. What is the blessing? Well, it's a double blessing, actually. The first is justification. In other words, we are declared righteous in the sight of God through faith in Christ. The second blessing is the Holy Spirit of God that's given to us. And it's these two gifts that God blesses all who are in Christ. He both justifies us, accepting us as righteous in His sight, and He puts His Spirit within us. And there's never one without the other. Did you know that? If you're a truly born-again believer, you have the Spirit of God. You cannot have the Spirit of God without being a truly born-again believer. There's never one without the other. But what does the gospel require? The gospel certainly offers blessings, but what must we do to receive those blessings? Well, the right answer is nothing. Nothing. We do not have to do anything 
to receive the blessing. All we need is a repentant heart toward God over our sin and faith in the shed blood and finished work of Jesus Christ. Our response is not works of righteousness, but believing in what Christ has already done. And Paul says, obeying the law, what you're trying to do, Galatians, what you've been confused about and what you've been persuaded or bewitched about, obeying the law is attempting to do the work of salvation yourself. Whereas believing is to let Christ be your Savior and rest in what He has already finished. That's the true gospel. That's the gospel of the Old and New Testament. The gospel that God Himself began to preach to Abraham, as we read in verse 8, that in thee all nations shall be blessed through faith. Paul continued to preach that gospel in his day. It's the same gospel we ought to set before men's eyes today. Amen? Do you, number one, have a conviction of truth? Number two, do you have a heart in you to preach the gospel and give the gospel to people who are lost? You need to boldly, vividly, publicly proclaim Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd encourage us with the truth of God's Word. Thank you for salvation by grace through faith. Lord, I'm thankful that we don't have to try to keep doing, keep obeying some man-made tradition or trying to perfectly adhere to the law that we could never, ever, ever maintain. And Paul's going to go on to talk about the impossibility of that, how the law demands perfection, and how the law only condemns to death. But through faith in Christ, there's new life. I'm thankful for the plan of salvation, thankful for the finished work of Christ on the cross who paid my sin debt. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful Lord, to proclaim that truth, to present Jesus Christ and Him crucified to people around us. And, and Lord, I also pray for Your people, Lord, that we would have real convictions about truth. And Lord, that we'd not have the mindset of the world to question or to dismiss or disregard the things of God. But Lord, as we find it in Your Word, as we come to conclusions and convictions about what is true from Your Word, Lord, I pray that we would stand firm and never compromise. And Lord, that You'd be able to use us to bring glory to Yourself. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.